Well, on this day, we join with a multitude, a multitude of, of people around the world, uh, people from diverse cultures and nations, many languages, many tribes, uh, but we worship the same God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure it has been said many times in the past, but it's true, without a doubt, uh, there are more books that have been written on and about the Lord Jesus, more pieces of artwork have been drawn and painted out of a motivation in service to him. More acts of service have been done in his name. Uh, more songs have been composed about him than any other person in all of human history. Curiously, though, both believers within the church and those who are outside the church who deny the Lord Jesus or who are simply indifferent about him, uh, both agree on this point. That in all of human history, there is no figure who has had a greater influence in the world than Jesus of Nazareth. I'm reading through Philip Schaff's The History of the Christian Church, and he quotes from Napoleon Bonaparte, who said this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was no mere man. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire, his kingdom upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. This is true. And yet, while this is true, at this very hour, there is probably no place, there's probably no culture in all of our country, in all of the United States, that has a greater percentage of people who are indifferent, ignorant, or simply without care of the truth of the Christian faith than here in the Northeast. Kind of like an old shirt, tucked away in the closet, no longer used, simply forgotten, or like an heirloom passed down, just sitting on top of one's uh, dresser. It's there, but it has no real use. So the great majority of people in our culture today see Christianity as irrelevant, unimportant, outdated, and unpractical. I've done a sufficient amount of research on uh, the state of Connecticut and the Northeast. I think I have read that Connecticut is ranked uh, among the top four least religious states in all of the country. I read as well that there is about 3% of the population of the Northeast who consider themselves evangelical. I would take that to mean someone who believes in the authority and reliability of the Bible, who believes in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross, and who believe in the triune God, the historic Christian God uh, revealed in the Bible, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The result there has likely never been a time in the history of our country where there has been a greater chasm, a greater gap between knowing the name of Jesus and knowing the gospel of Jesus. Knowing the name of Jesus and knowing the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, perhaps the classic text on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I think helped to close that gap. That, that the name of Christ, that the name of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus would be one uh, in, in our hearts 
and in our minds. So if you turn in the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we will read the first 11 verses. The entire, the entire chapter uh, is Paul addressing the subject of the resurrection to the church in Corinth, but we're going to focus on the first 11 verses. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to God's word. He says, Now I would remind you, or make known to you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is, Peter, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. As we consider these verses and these words, uh, I want us to be thinking about uh, two particular minds, just two particular questions uh, just initially here. One is, how does Paul define the gospel? And two, in what is he rooting this gospel? How does Paul define it here, and in what is he rooting it? As you're thinking about those questions, I take us back to a historical point about a hundred years after the ministry of the Lord Jesus on earth, about the year 135. And around that year, there was a Roman-Jewish war, a war that lasted about three years near and surrounding Judea. And in that war, the Romans captured and beheaded the leader of a major Jewish uprising, which resulted in the death of over half a million Jews, over 50 fortresses completely destroyed, and about a 1,000 villages left in ruins. Major destruction. The leader of this uprising called himself, quote, the President of Israel. He had his own coins issued. He distributed his own land deeds. He was hailed as a Messiah by the leading rabbi in his day, and as an act of devotion and service to him, every person who served in his army had a finger amputated in devotion to him. His name? Ben Kasaiba. Ben Kasaiba. As powerful a figure as he was, little evidence has come to us from his time And his name has only been known outside of his generation since 1951, when personal letters were discovered in a cave near the Dead Sea, unknown for almost 2,000 years. Now, a century before Ben Kasaiba, the Romans, again, had captured, flogged, and executed another Jew. 
This Jew also had a three-year public ministry. He had no coins that were minted. He issued no land. He had a small band of close followers. Yet within a generation of his death, his name was known throughout Palestine. Within three, gener- within three centuries, his, uh, his name was known throughout most of the Roman Empire, and his symbol was engraved on the, on the shields of the Roman soldiers. And today, it's fewer and fewer people around the world who have not heard the name of Jesus of Nazareth. What a contrast. Ben Kasaiba, Jesus of Nazareth. Two figures from the same part of the world, living at the same relative time in history, both serving in a public ministry, one only known since 1951, his influence only reaching to the boundaries of Palestine. The other, not only known throughout the world, but worshipped and adored, worshipped and adored by millions and millions, many who have and many who would give their lives for him. Why? Why? Because the followers of Christ were convinced. They were convinced of the very event, the very fact of what we celebrate this day, what we celebrate each Lord's Day. They were convinced of the historical death and the historical resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. There are a number of contemporary scholars today who have given much time and investment in the research and study of first century Judaism, uh, the time surrounding and the religious movements surrounding Jesus of Nazareth. About 50 years prior, about 100 years post Jesus' earthly ministry. And they have found that there were about 10 to 12 religious movements during that time, about a 200-year period of time, most of them uh, within Judaism. And within these movements were self-proclaimed messiahs, each of which had followers. And the followers of these self-proclaimed so-called messiahs, when their messiah was either executed by the Romans... Uh, or died a natural death, the followers would do one of two things. They would either return to their normal pattern of life in quiet, or they would attach themselves to a new Messiah. There was only one group of followers who did not do that, and it was the disciples of Jesus Christ. As the months went on after his crucifixion, And his resurrection and the years went on, they only became more and more emboldened because they were convinced he who was crucified is indeed risen. And they suffered much for it. Paul was one such man. The words of whom we have just read, as he writes to this church in Corinth, very likely, as we understand from history, a fairly small church, under 100 people, a church that he had much conflict with. In fact, as he writes to this same church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he describes some of the suffering that he has endured for this gospel that he's proclaimed. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Five times I received the forty lashes, three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned near to death, shipwrecked three times. 
at sea night and day, in danger from rivers, robbers, my own people, many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Friends, there's few things that you and I likely would suffer, be willing to suffer for. I think that was true of Paul. Paul was not suffering because Jesus was a good moral teacher or a courageous leader. He was those things, but it's not why Paul suffered. Neither was it because Jesus was an example of love and kindness to others. He was. It's not why Paul was suffering. In my mind, Paul is one of the greatest cases for the truth of the Christian faith because he deliberately changes his entire life course. He abandons his religious association with Judaism. He abandons his elite status as a Pharisee. He departs from the safety and protection that he and the Jews had under the Romans. And he willingly shifts his association and devotion to this very small, new, seemingly insignificant movement and band of Christian disciples, who, by the way, were on only one end of the persecution, and it was the receiving end. Why would Paul do this? Why would Paul do this? What personal benefit would it bring to Paul? Paul, he's not staking his life on the gospel message only, but notice as he writes to this church in Corinth how he is defining the gospel. And what is he rooting this gospel? He says, if you look at the first verses, I would remind you, or I would, I would make known to you, of the gospel that I preached to you. This word gospel, Paul uses numerous, numerous times throughout his letters. It's the word that Jesus uses when he began his preaching ministry. He began preaching the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom. It's the word euangelion. It means good, you, good, angelos, or angel, or messenger. It's a good news. It's a good message. It's directly related to the word for preach, which comes just a few words later in that, in that, in that verse which means to herald, to deliver, to proclaim. And so it's good news that is heralded, it is proclaimed, it's delivered. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. What strikes me is not only that Paul roots this in the Old Testament scriptures, but what strikes me in Paul's words is that his message is not an appeal to personal feelings. It's not an appeal to a set of moral standards. It's not even an appeal to human reason. As if the gospel is in any way defined by human opinion, subjective feelings, or the design of man. Remarkable. At the heart of the gospel here, as Paul defines it to the church in Corinth, are facts rooted in historical events. In fact, this is what he says in verse 20, later in that chapter. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Or indeed, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so by rooting the gospel in the historical events and facts of Christ's death and resurrection, what's Paul doing? 
He's rooting the gospel in something completely outside of man. This gospel is rooted outside of man. It's rooted in history, which flies in the face of our culture's view today of the Christian faith. The gospel is not rooted in what our culture today might call personal beliefs. As in, you have your personal beliefs, I have my personal beliefs. You believe what you think is right and good, I believe what I think is right and good. Or as if faith is purely subjective, non-rational, and unverifiable. Neither does Paul root it in pragmatism, which is very popular today, and self-help, as in, well, I believe it because it works for me. Was it working for Paul? No, he roots the gospel in the facts of history. This man died. He was buried. He rose. He then appeared to Peter and the Twelve and to James and over 500 brothers. In other words, Paul's saying, you you go speak to them. Many of them are still alive. That's what he's saying. And as we prepare to see the effect of this good news, uh, I was thinking this past week, the news is so good, there's actually good news about this good news. There's, there's many aspects of good news about this good news. For one, is there anything more concrete that the gospel, the foundation of our faith, could be rooted in than in reality itself? Historical events. Two, the good news does not waver or shift based on the level of your intellect or your emotional stability or the depth of your sin or the zeal of faith that you have. The good news is good because it's founded not upon people, but upon what our Lord has done in Jesus Christ. The good news is good not because we are good, but because of what He has done in being good to us. And yet, while Paul roots the good news in the facts of history... What Jesus Christ has accomplished in his death and resurrection. Uh, There are many enemies of the gospel today. There are many distortions of the gospel today. I think one of the greatest distortions is what many of us would call moralism. Moralism. The belief that Jesus was nothing more than an example of compassion and moral living. That is not the good news. It's true, but it's not the good news. He did not merely come as an example of compassion and moral living. C.S. Lewis provides a very good response to this in Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is, Jesus that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God or Lord. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who's merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, he would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, 
or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, I want us to see the personal effect that this gospel has. Yes, it is rooted in history. It's rooted in historical events. But it comes up close and personal. This gospel is personal. Look at the first verses and the number of personal pronouns that Paul uses. I would remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word, unless you believed in vain. See, what's remarkable about this good news is it's not only rooted in history, but it has come home to dwell with people. It is the most personal. This gospel came to you, he is saying. And I want us to see the primary application or effect of this gospel and the way Paul describes it. He uses the word saved or salvation in verse 2. This gospel, he says, by which you are being saved. This is a gospel of salvation. Similar to what Paul said in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. And so this gospel is about salvation. And I want us to see the effect of this salvation. It has two primary effects. One is a positional one. It's a change that is created in a person as it regards to their standing and position and status before Almighty God. This is how Paul puts it here in verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Paul is striking right at the heart of man's fundamental problem. What is man's core problem? It's not a behavioral one. It's not a mere behavioral problem. It is a positional problem. It's not merely that man does wrong. That's not our, our fundamental problem. It's that he is sinful. He died for our sins. Sin, that's transgressing God. Fundamentally, we need forgiveness. We need to be justified. We need to be reconciled to God. But this gospel, we only see it as good when we actually see our need. Do you see your neediness in your own life? It's not only a concept to grasp. It's that, but it's more than a concept. It's personal and practical. One will see little to no need for a Savior if one sees in their own life little to no sin. If you see in your life only a sliver of sin, you will get only a sliver of a Savior. But if you see in your life the magnitude, the greatness of your sin, you will see the greatness of Christ the Savior. That's what Paul could see so clearly. Even in his religious zeal as a Pharisee, uh, his devotion towards God's law, it was the grace of God that pierced his heart. And that's why he says in Verse 9 and 10, though I was a persecutor of the church of God, by the grace of God I am what I am. It wasn't his devotion. 
or his zeal. It wasn't even his sin. It was the grace of God that defined him. That the shedding of Christ's blood would atone for his sin on the cross. That the wrath of God would be satisfied. That's what defined Paul's life. What defines your life? What is defining your life? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Reminds me of John Newton's words. He said something very similar. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. John Newton, he knew the wickedness within his own heart. He was entrenched in the African slave trade. In the middle of the 18th century, he was the captain of a slave ship, the Duke of Argyle. Not only seeing the horrors, but supporting the horrors of slavery. And yet, by the mercy of God, not only would he become a minister of the gospel, but he would produce one of the most well-known and popular hymns ever, Amazing Grace. Part of what's so amazing about Amazing Grace is its simplicity. Newton actually conceived of the hymn in late December of 1772. He was using hymn writing as a preparation for a, Lord, uh, for a New, New, New Year's Day sermon. Uh, Newton had the unusual habit of using songwriting as preparation for preaching. And that's what he was beginning to conceive here. It's a simple hymn. Of the 146 words that comprise Amazing Grace, 125 of them are one-syllable words. He did that intentionally for people to understand, for people to memorize, and for singability. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. There's a simplicity to it, and there is a simplicity to the gospel that Paul is preaching. Christ died for our sins. Our guilt is removed. We are reconciled. We are justified. We are forgiven through His blood that cleanses from all unrighteousness. Friends, He didn't die for some of our sins. He didn't die for most of our sins. He died for all of our sins. Notice that this salvation that Paul speaks of, it's not only personal, not only creates this uh, new position before God, it's also progressive. It's ongoing. This is how Paul puts it in verse 2. This gospel which I preach to you is that by which you are being saved. That by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word. Throughout the scriptures, salvation is not merely something you receive like a ticket. It is a life that you enter. You have been saved, 
justified and reconciled, redeemed. You will be saved, Paul says in Romans 8, delivered from this body of decay. But he says here, you are being saved. Continuously sanctified in the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And so a final word about the Gospel, and particularly the resurrection. If you've read through the Gospels, you've probably noticed that every time Jesus begins teaching about His impending and necessary death, His crucifixion, and His resurrection, the disciples are confused. They're baffled by this. They don't get it. They're they're kind of left in disbelief. And they're baffled not because they did not believe in the possibility of resurrection. They believed that the resurrection would occur at the end of history. That's why they were confused. That's why they were baffled. What shook the world, what caused a quake in the lives of the disciples, is that a resurrection occurred in the middle of history. That's what changed everything. Many people in Jesus' day believed. Remember the woman at the well? She even told Jesus, yes, at the resurrection, at the resurrection. But this resurrection broke into history right in the middle. So that the end of history, the renewal of all things, was breaking into the present order. New creation was emerging in the here and the now. And it was creating this wake of new life. It's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Because we are united to him who is alive. It's like a drama, like a play. In a theater, Christ's resurrection. It really meant that the final act of the play, the climax of the drama, was somehow bursting into the middle of the story, into the middle of the drama. Transforming the way that we live here and now. And by the way, that's what we're going to be getting into in Matthew chapter 4 next Sunday as we speak about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus inaugurates and establishes. It has everything to do with the rule of Christ and the life of Christ by his spirit in the here and now. So I want to leave you just with a handful of brief statements, biblical truths that emerge as a result of the wake of new life that we have through Christ's resurrection. You can make note and We'll end with this. Number one, since Christ is risen, his reign and ruling power is not only a future hope, it is a present reality. It's Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. Two, through Christ's resurrection, our future resurrection is a certainty. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 49. Three, because Christ is risen, we shall not fear death. For he has not only endured the grave, but as the living Lord, he is with us through death itself. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. For through Christ's resurrection, we walk in newness of life. For our living Lord lives within us. 
Colossians 3. And finally, since Christ is risen, suffering, suffering in this world, however great, fades in comparison to the glory that is ours at the consummation. Romans 8. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all that we have in Jesus Christ, that in his crucifixion, you have atoned for our sin to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. That in his death we died too. To that old man, to that old self. And you have replaced a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. O Lord, give us new desires and new affections for you. And how we praise you for the resurrection. That our Lord is not in the tomb, he is not in the ground. He is alive, risen and ascended, seated at your right hand, O God, reigning with all power and with all glory, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And so strengthen us today, O Lord, enliven our hearts that we might serve you and that we might know in our own lives resurrection life, newness of life, And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.